Uh, okay, so uh, this text semester, if you were at the covenant member meeting, you know a little bit more about it, so you'll, you'll get a little bit of repetition. But one of the things we really wanted to do uh, this semester is to kind of essentially walk through uh, Parkway's new mission statements. Uh, so if you weren't at the covenant member meeting, Parkway's uh, new, or rather I should say elaborated mission statement is the Parkway Church, it's there in your notes, the Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who delight in him, display his love to one another, and declare him to the world. So we want to flesh that out over the semester uh, and then dig in specifically to how do we do that? How do we delight in him? How do we display his love to one another as a church? And how do we declare him to the world? And so this first kind of tech teaching, if you will, is, is going to be uh, an overview of the semester. One, I want to root us a little bit deeper into the kind of biblical lifeblood uh, of those three things, delighting in him, displaying his love, and declaring him, and then set us up. Uh, for success, if you will, this semester. Walk through uh, the topic. So, you, you know, you heard the famous saying, don't miss the forest for the trees. Uh, you can think of today, we're going to look at the forest. We're going to zoom out and look at the forest. And then each week beyond this throughout the semester, we're going to be looking at individual trees. Okay, so this will be kind of an overview or an intro to the semester. And so uh, why a new mission statement? Why a mission statement at all? A very important thing for us to realize as a church in the 21st century, because mission statements are nothing new, uh, every church that is a true church of Jesus Christ, that is a gospel-preaching church, uh, the most commonly known thing about them shouldn't be what makes them unique. It shouldn't be what makes them different from everybody else. Rather, it should be what makes them the same as all true churches throughout the, throughout the past 2,000 years, namely that they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that what they're about is what Jesus was about. God's glory, making much of his name, making disciples who praise him now and for all eternity. And one of the ways that churches typically try to capture that is through a mission statement. It's, it's a way of summarizing, here's, what, here's the way we're attempting to accomplish Jesus's mission. So we're not saying, hey, we've got this new cool thing that we want to go off and do on our own. That would be called uh, a cult. <laughs> or heresy, right? If you study Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, every, every cult starts with one guy going out into the woods by himself and saying, I think everything's been wrong for the past 2,000 years. Here's this new thing, right? So they do make it obvious for you. So when someone says that, run away from them. That is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, here is a repeated, very, very, very old thing. Glorifying God, making disciples of his son who primarily delight in him, who display his love to one another and who declare him to the world. That's who we want to be. That's who we want to be about. Or to say it another way, if a visitor were to come into Parkway and just wonder, what is, I passed 30 churches on the way. What's this church about? We hope these would be things that would be obvious to them. These people know and enjoy their God. These people have no interest in religious motions. These people have no interest in cold moralism. These people want to know and delight in the living God. And these people have a supernatural, unexplainable, otherworldly love for one another. And the only explanation is Jesus, this person that they enjoy, is here amongst them. 
His life is pumping through them. And these people have an undying motivation and purpose in life that nothing is able to distract them from, namely going and preaching the gospel of that God that they delight in so that other people might come know him and delight in him as well. That's our prayer, that that would be the aroma that rises from this place, that we would display that in our lives together. We would declare that with our lips and that would just be what's obvious in our relationship with God. We don't think these things are icing on the Christian cake. We don't think Christianity is primarily about follow all the rules and if you're extra holy, like God a lot. We think this is what is core to being a Christian. And so we wanted to make it pretty obvious for you in uh, a mission statement. Okay, so we want to dive into this in this semester and really flesh all these things out in, honestly, a very practical way. Uh, Another thing we talked about in the covenant member meeting that I'll repeat is there's a couple light shifts, if you will, or tweaks that we're making to this hour, this theological equipping hour. The first is sitting towards the front. (laughs) Uh, We want to make this a little bit more interactive. So think more classroom rather than just lecture. Uh, So I will be asking questions, not not nearly as much today because today's more of an overview, but as we walk through how to study the Bible, as we walk through how to pray the Bible, as we walk through how to disciple your family, as we walk through how do you evangelize, uh, we're going to be asking questions uh, that that aren't rhetorical. And be patient with us. We we don't want to ask, we're really good at asking bad questions. Like, you know, during a sermon, I'll be like, what's the answer to this? And somebody will boldly shout it out and I'll say, no. And then I'll give the right answer. Uh, We're not, hopefully, we're going to try not to do that. We're going to ask, you know, questions like, what is, what are some of the typical hindrances to evangelize? Why don't people typically evangelize? And you guys would say, fear, or I'm an introvert, or whatever. All good right answers, right? So that, that's what I mean by interactive. We'll still do Q&A at the end. Uh, so you, if you have a burning question, I think it'd just be more helpful rather than raising uh, your hand and kind of stopping the teaching. Just still text those in. We'll get to those towards the end. But we'll be hopefully asking good questions. Just be, be patient with us. We're trying to grow uh, as well. And that, that's, that's why the sit towards the front hard rule slash shaming at the beginning of the teaching, right? Uh, is so that you don't have to scream. You can just talk and hopefully others uh, can hear you. So that's one. The second is uh, we want you guys to leave this hour uh, with uh, tools in your hands, metaphorically, not literally. Uh, so one of the things that's a blessing about theological equipping uh, is it is really good, rich uh, teaching about truths of God that we typically can't more explicitly dive into on a Sunday because on a Sunday we're preaching the word and we don't want to say, here, it's talking about love. Let me give a systematic theology lecture on love or something like that. So that's, that's great. We don't want to lose that. But we also, uh, as we've kind of pulled and talked with people, what do you love about tech? What's, what's difficult? Uh, is ironically, though it's theological equipping class, uh, we found a lot of people don't feel equipped uh, to actually go take what we've just learned and apply it in our lives. Not like it's 0%, it's just, it's just not uh, something more common. And something that we, we, we think is very important because the Bible talks about in Ephesians 4 is this passage that we'll read over and over again, but uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, I think it's there in your notes. He, Jesus, gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints, you guys, 
for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Okay, so what we're doing here, what we're doing every Sunday, and then what we're, we're trying to explicitly use this uh, Sunday school, theological equipping uh, hour, is to equip you guys so that you take uh, the good writ truths of God and know, okay, now I know how I can go apply that, which is why this semester we're just going to go as explicit as possible and just go, how? How do we delight in Jesus? How do we display his love? That's, that's a great thing. I, I want to do that. Tell me how. See that? So we want to dive into that. That doesn't mean we're never going to talk about uh, any systematic theology topics ever again or anything like that, but we want to, especially this first semester, dive into it since it's surrounded around our kind of identity as who we want to be as the people of Parkway. And then the third thing is we want to just give away uh, good books. Uh, there's a lot of bad books, but give away good books to resource you, uh, particularly around those three things, delight, display, and declare. So these books will be free for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this in just a second, and it's going to be crazy. And all of us are just going to be really bold and raise our hands and walk up to the front and stuff like that. And everyone's going to be looking at you and it's going to be terrifying. But I will have a book that I will say, who wants this? And if you raise your hand to take this free book, you are promising two things. And I'm going to encourage you towards the three th or third thing. You're promising to read it. I know we're getting very, very basic. If you take a free book, you're promising to read it. And you're promising to reach out to a staff member or an elder or your community group leader to talk about it. Okay, I've read it. And here's what I thought over coffee or a lunch. Those are the two promises you're making before the living God. Uh, and then the third thing I would encourage you to do is try to rope somebody else in to also buying that book, and then you guys can read it together. And so all the benefits that you are getting from the book can immediately be plugged into the community of the church. But instead of giving away three books and forcing you guys to meet with each other, you just you'd be like, hey, you notice I grabbed a book, and you know what Jared said. So you want to spend $22 on this, and then you can also buy, okay. So those three things. So let's do this. Oh, my goodness. Okay, three books. The first book, this would be in the kind of delight category. This is called Habits of Grace uh, by the author David Mathis. He works for Desiring God. He's also a pastor uh, in Minneapolis. This is a, a great just overview on how to study the Bible, how to meditate on the Bible. So many of the things we're going to talk about, he gives a really good overview of uh, how to pray to God. You hear God in his word, how to respond to him in prayer, and then uh, how to uh, fellowship with one another in the church. So who wants this wonderful, wonderful book? Sarah, okay. Will you come get it? You send, send Josh to come get it. Send Josh, yeah. What are husbands for? Then athletically jogging up to the front. Okay, second book. The Compelling Community, uh, in my opinion, this is the best, there you go, uh, this is the best kind of summary overview of what we mean when we say display the love of Jesus. This is a book by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlap on uh, what is it, what is meant to be the supernatural, <laughs> you can come here kidding, Landon. Uh, what is meant to be kind of the supernaturalness, uh, or what's the difference between uh, the world looking at this church and looking at, there you go, another country club. Oh, did you say thank you? Oh, you're welcome. Um, so the elders actually just read that together, spent several months uh, studying it together and, and talking through it. So great book. And then the last one, much shorter. If you're like, those books were over 80 pages, no thank you. Uh, what fuels the mission of the church? Roy, do you want this? Okay, so this is a great book by uh, Michael Reeves and... 
uh, Daniel Hames, uh, who he's, he's really bringing out how delight in God, spoiler alert, is what fuels the mission of the church. When your heart is so filled with the wonderful treasure that your Savior is, it will be very, very difficult for you to keep your lips shut about him. You will feel compelled. You will feel uh, fueled to go and tell your neighbor about how wonderful of a Savior is before them. So that's what that book is. There you go. Okay, we did it, guys. Uh, so that's another thing we want to do every week. And not every book will directly apply to the explicit teachings of that day. Some might, but they all will fall into those three categories of delight, display, and declare. Okay. So for the rest of, the, of, of our time today, uh, I want to just walk through those three points Delight, display, declare, uh, flesh out a little bit. Where are we getting that? Why do we think the Bible uh, points us to that? And then tease a little bit about how we're going to be teaching you guys to do that, okay? All right, first, we exist as a church to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who delight in him, delight in him. Uh, one of the things or I should say the thing that is incredible about your God uh, is that he's not a distant God. He's not a powerful God who looks down at you and says, read the tea leaves and figure it out. If you wanted to know anything about the gods of the ancient worlds, you would have to have a priest to either read the tea leaves or cut open the organs of a lamb and kind of read its innards, real weird stuff. Uh, I'd love to know the first guy to suggest that. I know how we know what God wants. Let's cut this animal open and see what the bowels are shaped like. Um, but that's literally what they would do, all to know something about God, all to know something about who their God is. What is Baal like? And they would do ridiculously evil things as a result of these myths that they've made up. And in contrast to that, your God, the living God of the Bible, is a God who comes down. And when you are not seeking him, he calls your attention. And he doesn't say, figure out what I'm like. He says, here's who I am. Here's my character. He is a God who reveals himself. That is unthinkably wonderful. Just that reality alone. Now, if we just stop there, he could reveal he is a tyrant. He could reveal he requires child sacrifice. He could reveal all sorts of wicked things. Is that what he does when God cracks open his chest and lets you look into his heart? No, we see that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gentle and lowly and patient, and most of all, the primary way he shows us his love is by sending his son so that we might just not know about him, but we might actually have fellowship with this incredible God. Adam and Eve and us with them were made to walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden paradise. And the greatest tragedy of getting kicked out in Genesis 3 isn't just death, although that is a consequence. It's that we're sent away from him. We're sent out of God's presence and there is an angel with a fiery sword going every way, guarding the way back. We can never get back in on our own. 
But this God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and steadfast love does send his son who does bring us back. And one of the most essential things that we miss so often is we'll look at the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ and we stop halfway. We say, Jesus came to forgive your sins. And look at me, that's incredible. The infinite wrath you and I deserve being taken away from us because it was poured out on him is incredible, but do not stop there. Salvation of Jesus is not just what you're saved from, but getting your debts removed is to orient your eyes towards what you're saved for, namely, knowing this wonderful God treasuring this wonderful God, enjoying this wonderful God. And that is what Jesus points us to over and over and over and over again. John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How did Paul understand his salvation? What does Paul summarize as his Aim of all aims, Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything lost. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain salvation from hell. Is that what he says? No, him. I might gain Christ and be found in him. The Psalms, God, God put the Psalms in the Bible to show you uh, as, as just a, a prayer book. Every, every human emotion possible is represented in the Psalms because it's the book that's meant to show you, here's how uh, you, you cry out to this God that you love. Here's how you go before this God that you love. And I just pulled a couple passages that you see littered throughout the Psalms. Psalms 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Notice he doesn't just say, you're the powerful one who gets me out of trouble. Or you're the wise one who gives me good counsel when I need it. He says, you are the one that I enjoy. You're the one who has all delights. You're the one that I'm after. Another one, Psalm 27. David says this, by the way, as he's surrounded by all of his enemies, as his enemies are preparing for war, not for his army, for him. As they're encamping around him, waiting to come up and kill him. This is what David asks. He asks one thing. Of God, What do you think he would ask? Can you kill these guys? Can you deliver me from these guys? That's what you would think. Here's what he asks, Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Psalm 16 the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is 
fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. So this psalmist is sitting down at a table and he's got an empty plate and he can choose anything in the world to feast on. Anything in the world as his portion. What does he say? God is my portion. God is my delight. God is my enjoyment. He's the one where there's fullness of joy. He's the one where there's pleasure forevermore. One more, Psalm 73. Just the echo of a soul who understands who his God is and why they're made. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You were made for delight in him, to glorify him by enjoying him forever. You were saved to get back to delighting in him. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, eternity is going to be delighting in him. The crescendo of the Bible is, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We will see his face. We will hit our knees and praise him and enjoy him for all of eternity. He will be our God. We will be his people. And again, this is, we're not trying to say something new. This is, I would say, what church history has been screaming for 2,000 years. What is the chief end of man? The great Puritan Westminster Catechism said, glorify God and enjoy him forever, which are two sides of the same coin. John Piper made very popular today what he called coined Christian hedonism, this idea that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, that prizing him is the essence of praising him. But again, he would be the first one to tell you, I'm just rephrasing what Augustine said 1,600 years ago, or what the reformers said 500 years ago, or what the Puritans said 400 years ago, or what Athanasius said 1,900 years ago, or Irenaeus said 1,900 years ago, or Polycarp says as he's about to be martyred 2,000 years ago. We glorify him by enjoying him and making him our supreme treasure. And we will do that one day by sight. Now we do it by faith. He's not here with us physically as he was with the disciples in the upper room, but we taste and see with the eyes of faith. So here is the very, very, very important question. How? How do we delight in God? And let me, ask, let me just ask the first question of the semester. Why is it important to know how we're meant to delight in God? Why is that important? I'm going to have much more natural water breaks now. Why is that important? You want me to give you some answers that you should have said? Okay, I'm just, I get it. There's grace. I'm helping you out. Okay, so do we go to the Bible or do I go in a closet and just hear God? There's whole traditions of mystics that will commune with God and say, God told me this, like Joseph Smith, and it leads to the heresy of Mormonism. He didn't know how he was meant to hear God. He didn't know how he was meant to delight in God, and it led to something, I would say, unhelpful. That's one reason. Here's another reason I think is more applicable to us. Uh, 
if you just hear me on a Sunday morning say, treasure Jesus, but you don't know how, or we haven't done a good job of equipping you to do that, you're just going to feel bad. You're not going to know where to go with that, and you're unfortunately just going to come to the conclusion of, I guess I'm just not godly enough. I guess this is just something I'm supposed to intuit, right? And just know, okay. But we want to take time to say, here's how. Number one, we study his word. God has spoken to us by his word. We see these, so these are, I'm walking through the topics now. We're going to learn next week, how do we study scripture? How do we rightly hear God? You have the word of the living God sitting in your lap right now or on your shelf at home. Like, think about that. Again, there's cultures that will pour out their lives to just get one word from the gods. You have the sufficient word of God that you can go to anytime you want. And so we want to really know how. How do we hear God rightly? How do we not misunderstand what God is saying? How do we use this scripture that we have? How do we not pull things out of context, right? How do we not take Philippians 4.13 and make it about me scoring touchdowns or something like that? How do we rightly study the word of God? So we'll talk about that. Lee will talk about that next week. Next, how do we meditate on the scriptures? Probably what the reformers and the Puritans would say is the most essential spiritual discipline that I think has almost been completely lost today is this idea, meditating on the scriptures. When I say the word meditation, I would imagine you just think of like Eastern mysticism, Eastern meditation, the idea of kind of emptying your mind. You almost, it feels like a bad word, yet over and over and over again we read in the scriptures things like Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And because he meditates day and night, what's the result in his life? He is like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all he does, he prospers. The, the gate, if you will, to the Psalms, the gate to the prayer book of the Bible is saying, meditate on the scripture. So we need to know how. How do we do that? Is it just the Christian version of Buddhism, or is it something radically different? Yes, we'll get to that, right? Something radically different. This personally, uh, meditating on the scriptures and praying the Bible, which I'll talk about next, are the two most things personally that have transformed uh, my communion with the Lord. There's no close second place. So we want to learn how to meditate on the scriptures. Next, how to pray the Bible. We typically will rush into prayer and say, dear God, and then either just pray the same, you know, old things about the same old things as Donald Whitney would say, or our minds are just scattered and we typically just get discouraged or, let's be honest, bored in prayer. And it's because we speak first, we kind of approach backwards instead of letting God speak first in his word and then we respond to him in prayer. You have, one of the main things I pray for you when I'm going through the directories is I look at Paul's prayers 
at the beginning of his letters, what he prays for the Ephesians and for the Philippians and the Thessalonians, and I pray that for you, that the eyes of your hearts would be opened and enlightened to see the wonderful riches of the gospel. So Paul prays in Ephesians 1, right? He's responding, I respond to the scriptures. So we'll talk through how do we do that? How do we pray as a response? How do we talk to God, if you will? How do we hear him and then respond to him in prayer? Next, we'll talk about how to kill sin, which does that look weird to anybody? Like study the scriptures, meditate, sin. Does that look kind of weird? Like it's almost out of order. Why is that in there? John Owen would say, the, most, the, the biggest threat to your communion with God is sin. And this idea that we're just going to coast in the third heaven in this broken world without having to make war every single day against sin is wrong. And so if you want to commune with the living God, you're going to have to, like Cain was meant to in Genesis 4, watch out for the sin that is crouching at your door and desire is for you. Okay, so I think Lee's going to teach that. He's going to talk about how do we effectively kill sin in a way that fuels our delight with God, and then how to delight in God's creation. What's that about? That's not pantheism. Don't freak out. It's not like we ran out of Bible stuff, and we're like, I guess the trees, right? Okay, so what are we getting at? What do we mean by that? Uh, the first, one of the first realities we encounter when you open the Bible uh, is that there's a God he exists eternally before everything else, and then you see he's creator. God speaks, and then there's everything else. And so, therefore, everything you lay your eyes on when your eyes are open, or I guess when your eyes are shut because you're technically looking at your eyelids, are the result of God's divine hand, of his creating hand. And Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above his handiwork. According to the Bible, the creation is screaming at you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Claudia sneezes really loud as well, so that, I don't know why I laughed at that. It's just normal to me. Um, according to the Bible, the stars, when you look at them in the sky and you look for Orion or whatever, or you look for the Big Dipper, what the stars want you to see is God is glorious. God is wonderful. He hung us here. When the sun rises and you're outside for four and a half seconds before the perspiration begins to pour down your face, what the sun is screaming at you is God is the one making the sun rise and makes it set. As the moon reflects the sun, what it's screaming at you is God's wonderful, beautiful hand designed all of this. As you hear the birds chirp, what they're chirping at you is God feeds us. When you see the flowers bloom, what they're telling you is God clothes us, Matthew 6. If we listen to the scriptures about what the creation is yelling at us, there is no place you can look in the world where you shouldn't be compelled to worship your creating God. And so we want to equip you to do that. Does that make sense? See how that's different than pantheism? Okay. Lastly, this is, I'll admit, I put this here selfishly because I love church history. Uh, learning from church heroes. Okay, this is my biblical foundation for not talking about the Bible and talking about John Newton and McShane. Okay, so look at uh, Philippians 3. 
Paul talking to the Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me, Paul, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, which I take to mean all other faithful Christians who are following Christ and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Or let me say it this way. We're 2,000 years later, which means we've inherited a lot of confusion and a lot of difficult debates. We have also inherited such treasure of men and women who have spent their whole life mining the glories of God. And they have died and their works have remained and their treasure chests are open, waiting for you. Augustine has his treasure waiting for you to search and see how wonderful and how sovereign and how gracious your God is. C.S. Lewis has his works waiting for you to see the depths of your God, the reality of your God, the beauty of your God. McShane has his works open to you to see the sweetness of your Savior waiting for you. Don't read bad books. We've got too many good ones to waste our time. So we want to talk about how do you do that? Because there's, as there's a lot of old dead guys, and there's good ones, and there's some bad ones. There's ones you should avoid. So how do you find the good ones? And then how do you actually do that if John Owen is hard to read? Like, what do we do? How do we navigate that? So we'll talk about that. Uh, essentially, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to put voices around you. I'm trying to put voices in your ears. The, the best way for you to grow in your encouragement is to hang out with people who encourage and vice versa. You want to grow in gossip and cynicism, hang out with some people who gossip all the time. You want to grow in evangelism, just go spend time with bold evangelists. Just go have dinner with them. You don't have to be on the streets with them. It will just be infectious. There's this inevitability of influence, and that is true of dead men as well. You want to see the glories of God hang out with some dead guys who can't shut up about the glories of God and the wonders of God and the riches of grace. And you'll find friends. You'll hang out with John Newton and you'll hang out with McShane. So, two things. So this is uh, not a magic formula. Don't misunderstand what we're doing. This is not some sort of magic formula to turn us into these beaming, all the time, third heaven, delighting in God people, right? We can plant, we can water. God has to move. The Spirit has to move in our hearts to actually do the sanctifying works. The Spirit has to actually kill the sin. The Spirit has to set our eyes on the Savior. But what this is doing, as my old pastor used to say, this puts us under the faucet, if you will waiting for God to turn it on. Or as Dave Mathis says in his Habits of Grace, it puts us on the paths of his promises. And we wait for him to come through, okay? So we're not trying to, to crack this magic code, but rather this is just meant to put us in the way of his grace and see his grace lavished upon us. And then secondly, last thing I'll say about delight, uh, this is meant to not just make us have really good quiet times. I want this to build habits so that we learn to abide in him all day. In the same way we abide in our phone, meaning when there's dead time, we pick it up and scroll. What if your reaction was thinking about the sweetness of your Savior when there's space? What if the dead time was prayer? The thing that's burdening you, you, you take before the Lord. That's what we're trying to do is just kind of rewire our habits. So that's delight. Uh, I spent the most time there, by the way, because delight flows into everything else. 
You will not love one another. You will not display his love to one another by just trying really hard. You will when your heart is full of him. He will just overflow and you won't tell your neighbor about Jesus just by trying really hard, but you will when your heart is full of him. So spend the most time there. Let's look at the next two. Display his love to one another. Uh, the biblical reality of salvation isn't just that we're saved into a one-on-one relationship with Jesus, isn't just that, but we're saved into Jesus's family. And Jesus spends so much time, and the New Testament spends so much time telling us how are we meant to relate to one another. And the key passage for this that you'll hear us quote over and over again is from Jesus in the upper room right after he's washed the disciples' feet when he says this in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so how has, just as I have loved you, what is he talking about? He's just washed their feet. And we can keep going. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to forgive. So in that same way, you likewise love one another. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not by how loud you sing and show everyone that you love God, but rather how you lay your lives down for one another. That reality is what displays these are Jesus's people. That's the witness. These are Jesus's people, okay? Philippians 2 is another example. I won't go into it for the sake of time, but Paul just painting this picture of have this mind, be unified, consider one another better than yourself. Why? Because the God of the universe considered you better than himself and stepped off his throne and died a slave's death. That's why. His life flows into our life as the people of God. And so how do we do that? We love like Jesus loves. We walk through all the one another's, right? There's Tons of them all throughout scripture. Bear one another's burdens, build one another up, disciple one another, rebuke sin in one another. And so again, the key question, very important question is how do we do that? How do we display his love? Do we just, is that just be nicer to one another? Is that just friendlier small talk in the lobby? Is that check, we're displaying it? Or is it more Bible studies? Like what actually does it mean? And so we're gonna talk about that. We've got the, text listed, or listed there, how to build up the church. Again, Ephesians 4, all about equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Why? For the building up of the church. The health of the church comes from us building one another up with the gospel. And so how do you do that? We'll talk about it. How do we be a community of prayer? If there's anything that displays, it's just a mark of the church in Acts, is that they are a desperate people of prayer. As stronger forces keep trying to stomp out the gospel and stomp out the gospel and stomp out the gospel, we see scene after scene after scene of prayer, people going before the Lord, not relying on their own awesomeness, but going before the Lord, the Spirit filling them, and then the gospel going forth and many being added to their number. We see that over and over and over and over again. So I'll, 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 teach, us, I'll teach that lesson. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm terrified. There's nothing more convicting uh, than how prayerless we are because prayerlessness displays how little you actually believe God's the one that has to do everything. Uh, and so we don't want to be those people. We want to be people who are dependent on God, or to use kind of the old example, if God left this place, would anybody notice? Or would we just kind of keep trucking? And like, you know, we just don't get the flutteries as much. Or would this place crumble if God left? We hope it's the second. 
and that we hope we thrive because the life of Jesus is beaming through this place. So how to be a community of prayer, how to disciple one another. If disciples are called to make disciples, if followers of Jesus help others follow Jesus is what we're called to do. How do we do that? How do you find someone to disciple? Do you rock up and say, I heard people need to be discipled and you're welcome. I'm here. So let the line form in the front, right? How do you do that? That's kind of awkward. How do you find someone to disciple you? We'll talk about that. What do you actually do when you're discipling one another? Okay. So what what if I'm too busy? What if I'm not smart enough? All those different things. How do you disciple one another? We want to walk through the practicalities of that. How do you disciple your family? What do I do with these 9,000 kids the Lord has blessed us with? What's a faithful way to disciple them? What's a faithful way to raise them as Ephesians 6 calls us to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? And then how are we meant to be distinct from the world? If we're called to be a city on a hill, if we're called to be the salt of the earth, what does that mean? How do we do that? Does that just mean don't go to rated R movies? Does that just mean don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those who do? Right? How, how, how are we? We're called to be distinct from the world. How? Is it by kind of like the desert, desert fathers just secluding ourselves, running away from the world, saying, you're gross, we're holy, right? Or something radically different. It's something radically different. Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, when we get there. And then lastly, declare. Uh, Again, uh, the story of the New Testament is Jesus accomplishing the victory of God's mission and then commissioning his people to go out and tell the good news that our sins have been paid for and that life is available to us in the sun. We'll, We'll get there when we get to Matthew. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew 28. Now go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We see Romans 10 there. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they going to believe in him if no one's declared him to them? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, the Lord who has believed believed what they have heard, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's just... You're here because for 2,000 years, people have been faithful to this. Beautiful feet have brought the gospel to you, or else you would not be here. We are here because of other people's faithful obedience. May we continue that mission. May we continue to have beautiful feet who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, who declare him to the world. That's why we exist. We're his ambassadors. We're the bearers of the good news. We have this treasure of Jesus in these jars of clay on purpose to show that the power of the church spreading for 2,000 years belongs not to us and our awesome eloquence, but to God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. So again, the, the vital question, sorry, I'm skipping some passages there. The vital question is how? How do we do that? We especially live in the day where there's a lot of really loud voices all saying, here's what you should do. 
social justice, or here's what you should do, only preach against social justice, <laughs> right? Uh, here's what you should do, get a megaphone and stand on the street corner. That's what John Wesley did, should we do that? Here's what you should do, just you know, talk about the love of Jesus, don't ever talk about sin, or here's what you should do. There's just so much loudness, it's very easy to encounter bad loudness. Okay, tweet that. Um, so how are we supposed to do it? That's what we want to dive into. So how do we evangelize? Again, should we do like Whitfield? Set up our own booth and just start screaming, right? Or uh, do we walk the streets? Or do we knock on doors? Or do we really dig down and build relationships with our neighbors? How, how do we actually do that? What's, what's faithful? We'll talk about that. How do you engage in the surrounding community? Who's responsible for the problems of McKinney? Is it us? Who's responsible for the poor of Allen? Is it us? We'll talk about that. How, how is the church meant to relate to the surrounding world? Is there a difference between the mission of the church and the mission of the individual Christian? We'll flesh those things out. How do you plant churches? If the primary way the gospel is spread is through the advancement and planting of local churches, which is exactly what we see Paul do all throughout Acts, planting churches in Thessalonica and Philippi and Corinth and Ephesus all around, how do we do that? As God has put us in one of the fastest growing counties in the world, or in America, I don't know, I think we're number two now, uh, but just everyone is moving here. And so it seems expedient to plant more churches that can preach the gospel and make disciples. So how do we do that? Do we just hire a guy and wait? Is there something we can be doing now? Like, how do we navigate those things? Fourth, be kingdom-minded. So taking in the reality that Parkway is a tiny piece. We have the honor of being a part of what God's doing in the world, but we are a tiny piece. Praise God. He has not hung his hopes on this local church, but how, how do we relate to what God is doing outside these walls? In McKinney, how do we relate to other churches that are also preaching the gospel? How do we partner with them? How do we relate with good organizations that are trying to uh, take the gospel in difficult places? We'll, we'll walk through that. And then lastly, how do we engage in international missions? If we're called to make disciples of all nations, how do we do that? What does that mean? Can I go across the street because someone from a different nation lives there? Do I need to go into the 1040 window? Like, what, what does faithfulness look like there? Do we just wait for Lee to go one day and then we're like, missions, we did it, right? How do, how do, we, how do we actually do that? So we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so that's what we'll be walking through. And, and hear me as, as, I, as I close, let me just, our goal is not to just like, Check, we've solved all the problems. Our goal is just to, again, just keep saturating our minds with who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do in light of who he is and what he is about. Okay, so we just want to constantly see how, not by our own strength, but rather through him, we might make his name glorious so that, to, to quote the end of that passage in Philippians that we didn't get to, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's our aim. And so that's why we're, we're doing this, this semester. So let me just give two exhortations and then I'll pray. Lee can come up here if you guys texted in any questions. Uh, if not, I'll apologize for my aggression and you guys not answering me. I already feel bad for it. 
That's what happens when you have a feeler as a pastor. Um, Okay, two exhortations. One would just be to commit. Uh, You might think, I already know how to study the Bible, skipping leaves, but I don't really know how to meditate, so I'll come to that. I'll just encourage you to commit. Please don't view this uh, as a service to be consumed. View this time, this semester, and then all other semesters as training, as equipping the saints, the ministers, for the work of ministry for the glory of God. So commit and come. You might learn something new. The Lord might you know, take something, as he does over and over again, take something you've heard 10,000 times, and it just becomes one of the most precious things in your life. And then two, the most important thing, be praying like crazy. Be constant in prayer for your church that we might not coast, that we might not just rest on nice sermons and nice people, but that we would spend every breath that we have so long as God has us here with a shining lampstand for his glory. And that, again, this mission statement wouldn't just be like a cool graphic that we now have, but rather that it might be a mark of our identity, that we would be a people who treasure their Savior. He's not an abstract idea to us. He is our life and our all. We live and move and have our being in him. He is my sweet savior, my older brother, my friend, that that might be our cry and that our love for one another is otherworldly, is unexplainable. It can't be explained by human kindness. Something has happened to these people's hearts to make them treat one another this way. Again, only God can do that, so we need to be asking him to do that. And then thirdly, that God would just make us bold to evangelize, to open our lips We see all throughout Acts a church that is beaten after every sermon, and those beatings drive them to pray, which drives them to speak louder, because we must obey God and not man. So pray that that same boldness that filled the church in Acts 4 fills this place and opens our mouth in our workplaces, in our streets. God has to do that. So pray with me as we take those before the Lord. Father, we pray all those things to you. Your name is wonderful, and it will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. You win. We know how the story ends, but you have many in this city who have been appointed to salvation, and so I pray that you would open our lips that they might come to know you, that they might come to love your son, that they might join a local church that preaches your gospel and they might open their lips, that more might come to know you, that our names might fade and that your name might be highly exalted and lifted up. We pray you would do that and that you would just help us in our time these these mornings just to really understand the practicalities of this, not to make us pragmatists, but so that the wonderful promises that you give us, we might see plugged in to our hour-by-hour lives, our minute-by-minute lives, that they wouldn't just hang in the sky as sweet, abstract things, but they might be our actual breath, our actual life. We might see how your sovereignty radically affects how I go to work and how I parent my kids and how much sleep I get and those sorts of things. So please do that in our hearts, we pray in your son's name. Amen.